What is a joy to be back with you on this Lord's Day. Gather around God's people and around his word to hear from God. Many in our country, in our particular context, are fearful of what is being played out before our eyes in the months ahead. Perhaps since 2016, most Americans have dreaded 2020 because they felt the sort of fracturing pressure that the presidential election had upon our country. And and over those years, and surprisingly, 2016 feels so far away, as we approach 2020, we trust and have recognized that the division has only gotten perhaps larger. We live in a time of great polarization, of great division, and even divisiveness. But if you know the history of America, you know that this is not foreign to American history. From the very beginning, America has always been a divided country. It's always been divided maybe geographically, uh, divided politically, divided economically. Uh, We know as America got older and as time passed, there was the division between the North and the South over issues like slavery, economic poverty, And the years following the Civil War, we know that our country uh, faced great division over how, for example, it would participate in the global economy or the global work of safety. Uh, This is why Americans were so divided prior to World War I. They wanted to stay out of wars and didn't want to have anything to do with them. Many of you here today can remember times like during World War II when the country seemed to be very united. There was a common cause, a common uh, thread that unified the country together. And then in years that passed, other things came like the Cold War seemed to unify everyone. Everybody was on the same page. They all agreed that communism was wrong and should be avoided. And even in most recent history, um, many of us remember the unifying time uh, during 9-11 when a country was, uh, if you will, divided in the 90s and being fractured by some of the uh, cultural and revolutionary uh, kind of activity. What happened on 9-11 seemed to unify us again. But then comes today. And I use this as an illustration because often we forget that as Christians, we live in a particular cultural climate. We live in a certain context. We live in a world and then we come in here and gather on the Lord's Day. And and we inherently bring with us the sort of cultural baggage, if you will, or cultural clothes that we wear throughout the week. And sometimes that, those divisions that we see in the world kind of crop up in the church. And we're not surprised by them. 
but we surely as Christians want to work against them. We want to come to a place as a congregation where where we can be a congregation made up of Republicans and Democrats, right? So the call to follow Jesus and what we're going to consider in the weeks ahead isn't that all of us in this room should become independents, right? We we should all register as independents and there's no political party representation. No, as Christians, we need to understand how to be a Christian and be this label. We need to understand that other Christians come at difficult social issues in different ways. And they all have the same blood of Jesus running through them. We as Christians need to understand that that the way perhaps some brothers and sisters, because the lives they've lived, that we, we don't have the sort of categories, have a sense of perspective that we don't have. Just as we have a unique perspective in our lives where we have to seek to listen and understand. What I don't want to do in the, in the weeks ahead as we think about unity is to whitewash unity. In other words, sometimes when you think about racial issues, um, the, the, and I think it's well-meaning, but, but I don't think they understand it. It is that, oh, I'm, not, I'm colorblind. I don't see color. I don't see... Well, I understand what you're saying there. However, that's not really biblical. You see, the Bible honors and upholds different nationalities and different races. It doesn't seek to like just kind of level everything out and say everybody's you know, just sort of the same. No, we want to celebrate cultural differences. We want to celebrate these. These are God-given, right? Created. God created Adam and Eve, and, and you see this dispersion. So we want to celebrate diversity. We don't want to just sort of wash everything down. You see, that's what the world does, and that's why I want to caution us from doing that. The, the, the world wants to make everyone kind of fit in their silo and compartment. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is saying, no, I'm gathering people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And what's so amazing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he is taking all of this diversity and uniting it in one common body where they all think the same and believe the same. They have one faith and one hope and one Lord. And that's what makes the gospel so mysterious and beautiful. Brothers and sisters, when we forge ahead in Christian unity, we must not do it the way the world does it, because then we lose the luster and wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should, as a congregation, have a sort of place and space where we disagree. It's okay to disagree and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. It's okay for us to disagree about maybe finer details of eschatology in times. That's okay. It's okay that your pastor doesn't believe in a literal rapture. It's okay. And you've put up with it for four years and you're still doing okay. It's okay that, that we maybe are uh, come a little bit different on how to deal with some of the difficult task of figuring out how do we work together for the sake of the gospel. Now that nobody's going to listen to me that I said that about the rapture, <laughs> let's get into the Bible. <laughs> so, uh, sorry about that. 
Uh, I'll retract that later. Ephesians chapter 2. I invite you to turn there if you haven't already. Uh, Let's open the Bible. Uh, We have, of course, been studying through this letter and making great speed through it, I hope. Um, We will kind of slow a little bit more. Some of you slow. My goodness, we've been going at a snail's pace already. Um, But we want to consider here, as I've said, in in this section in verses 11 through 22, uh, really three sermons thinking about uh, what we once were, what we are now, and the sort of grand overarching purpose why God has done this, why he took those who were far, brought them near, and built a new people, where he took the nation of Israel and these Gentiles and united them into a one body, a new body, a new people. And we want to think about that. But this is all within the context of chapter 2. Paul began with that eulogy, that praise of God in chapter 1, and then moved into Uh, From there, prayer and and thanksgiving. And he was praying specifically that they would know the power of God. That they would know God's power better in their lives. He began in chapter 2 by saying, hey, remember, God's power is operative individually in your life. So he, he thought through the individual Christian, what God had done in their life, in your life. How he had taken you from death and brought you to life that you might be his workmanship. Well, from here in verses 11 through 22, Paul then says, well, God not only did that individually, but there's a corporate aspect where God is uniting together all of these people into this new family. Those who are once homeless have been invited in and been given a family. And then in chapter 3, in, in, in kind of a conclusion way, he wraps it all together and says, hey, by the way, all this great, wondrous power of God has been put on display, right? So we're meeting in public today as best as we can so that we might display God's power of uniting together. And Paul says that's the mystery of the gospel for which he had been commissioned. Well, this morning we're going to consider verses 11 through 13 of chapter 2. So I'll begin reading there. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What is Paul's point? Well, Paul here is reminding them of their past situation. And he gives the church confidence by doing this. It is meant to give them confidence to know that God is the one who's at work to bring about unity. Now, when we think about unity in the church, why we pray to God is because it is ultimately God's work. The power of God is operative to unite us together through the atoning work of Christ. And so we want to see this morning that the unity in the body of Christ is a goal of God's redemptive plan in Christ. So one of the goals that God has 
in our salvation is unity, Christian unity. And that unity in the local church and beyond, so we're going to think about it in a micro and macro level, a small, near, local church level. And then the next week, we want to think about it larger in a sort of universal church level. Uh, but, but to begin with, we want to think here about what it looks like in our church, thinking individually who we are and what God has done. And so Paul gives us two reminders. You'll see in the text there are two reminders here. Uh, first, in verses 11 through 12, He says to them, remember, you were once far from Christ. And then in verse 13, he'll say, but remember, you have now been brought near to Christ. There's this near and far, right? Remember that from the Sesame Street? Near and far. Uh, That's the emphasis that he's doing here. He's saying, you are near to Christ, but once you were far from Christ. Well, let's look here at the text and see what Paul says. He begins by saying that remember, the the first imperative that's come in the letter. He says, I want you to remember. I want your mind to be reminded of what you once were. Now, why would Paul need to do this? Well, because you've experienced this as well. Sometimes we forget where we came from. When we enjoy the sort of blessings of life, sometimes we forget, man, I came from great poverty. And sometimes by reminding ourselves of where we once were can cause us to have great appreciation of where we are today. Uh, We thought about that in in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 10. Uh, In order for us to really relish in the good news of the gospel, well, of course, we have to have bad news, right? In order for the news to be good, there has to be some part of it that's bad. If not, it's just news. It can't be qualified good or bad. And here Paul gives them, if you will, a reminder of their past in a means to humble them and encourage them to reflect on what God has done in Christ. And so he says, remember, remember the state before Christ. Remember who you were before Jesus saved you. And so he's taking them back at time, in time and he's saying, remember that you Gentiles in the flesh. The word Gentile there is a word that really just means ethnic groups. It's ta ethne. It's just it's a generic term that means ethnic people. Right. And so you all this morning, unless you are a uh, born in a Jewish family. Uh, You and I are Gentiles, right? Uh, There are really two groups of people in the world, in in the Bible world. There are the Israelites, the Jews, and there's everybody else. Uh, And that's true even today. There are the Jews and the Gentiles. The the Bible uses that language. And notice, if you will, in verse 11, what made the distinction. Uh, The distinction is that you are the un. Circumcised, the the uncircumcision, right? This was a term of derision. This wasn't a a positive term, right? So Jews would look at others outside of their ethnic group and and despise them. They would see them as the uncircumcised, right? Of course, there's illustrations of that all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, When Joshua, for example, is in uh, going in in, into the promised land, you you see this sort of revulsion that they have of the Canaanites because they are the uncircumcised. Right. 
Well, circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God had given Abraham. So uh, Abraham was no one special. Uh, in, In other words, it wasn't that Abraham was living some righteous life. But rather, God said, of all the people that existed on the earth in that particular time, he said, I want Abram. And I want to make you a great nation. And that was the nation of Israel. And as a sign of this covenant that I'm making with you, the covenant that he was going to make a great nation out of Abraham's children, I want you to circumcise yourself and your sons. And this would be a sign, a a, a continual, perpetual sign, generation after generation of God's promises given through Abram. Who then became Abraham. And so throughout the nations, throughout the centuries, as they went by, there was this division. And so Paul here is reminding them of this division. He is, if you will, stabbing them in the back a bit and prodding them and saying, do you remember the pain that you felt? When you were called the uncircumcised. Uh, When you were called, if you will, not one of God's children, uh, as he'll emphasize here in a moment. And so Paul here is reminding them of this great distinction. But notice what he says in verse 11, which is made in the flesh by hands. Even here where Paul is making this distinction kind of subtly nudges against circumcision. Subtly here, Paul is saying, you know what? At the end of the day, it's just something human beings do to themselves. It's nothing truly that God does. In other words, he's even in this sort of contrasting picture, reminding them that one could be circumcised and not really circumcised. This is an issue Jesus dealt with with the Jews. Uh, They were circumcised. They thought, okay, because I went through this religious activity, I must be accepted by God. And Jesus said, no, no, friend. See, if your heart hasn't been circumcised, you can do all the things you want to do to your body. But at the end of the day, if your heart isn't in it, then it's meaningless. It's meaningless. Well, Paul here causes to remind them five things. Notice here the five uh, sort of the list that he gives. First, he begins by saying that that you were once Christless. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. Now, the word Christ means Messiah, uh, the anointed one, the one that God had promised would come and deliver God's people from uh, their slavery and give them final victory over sin and death. And, And as God promised that, what Paul is saying here isn't that Uh, They were without Jesus, but they they were without a Messiah. They were without a Savior. They didn't have anyone that could save the day. They were without Christ. Not only that, he says that they were homeless. Notice he says that they were separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, they couldn't get citizenship in Israel if they tried. Because the promise was through the ethnic people group, through this bloodline, they couldn't, because they didn't have the blood, enter into that. 
Now, of course, there were some that were grafted in in various ways throughout the Old Testament. And even in the New Testament, we see uh, that going on in some ways, a sort of watering down uh, of that. But that was some sin issues that like Ezra dealt with, for example, the intermarrying kind of behavior that was going on. But regardless, if you go all the way back to the promises given through Abraham, they could not gain citizenship in Israel. So not only did they not have a savior, they didn't have a home. They had no part of the promises given to the nation of Israel. But it go, he goes on. He says, not only were you alienated from citizenship, but you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You were literally estranged from the promises of God. The, the promises of co- excuse me, the covenants of promise uh, here Paul is mentioning would be, uh, for example, the Abrahamic covenant, which I mentioned, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, those promises that God gave to the nation of Israel and said that, you know, you will be my people and I will be your God. Abrahamic covenant, uh, the Mosaic covenant. Uh, through the giving of the Ten Commandments. Uh, you will be my people and I will be your God. And this is, I'm giving you the promised land and you're to obey these rules. Or the Davidic covenant. Uh, David, I promise that your son will forever sit on the throne. Uh, they didn't know any of these promises. And it makes sense, right? Uh, they weren't Jews. They didn't have access to them. They didn't go up to, the, temp- or to the, the synagogue or the temple to find these things out. But more than that, notice here in verse 12 that they were also without hope. Not only were, were Gentiles Christless and homeless and friendless, they were hopeless. They had no hope. No hope of salvation. No hope that God would deliver them from his just wrath. And so Paul concludes in verse 12, without God in the world. Now this doesn't mean that, that God isn't in the world. And functionally in the lives of non-Christians. Or, but rather that they live godless lives. They live lives that were as if God did not exist. That's a very bleak picture here that Paul paints, isn't it? Uh, it's a very sad picture. A dark picture. Uh, no savior. No home. Uh, I mean, nothing. Estranged from all the promises of God, can't having access to any of this. And what Paul is saying to them, he is saying to us. It's a very humbling place to be. As Christians, we trust that all that we have received through Christ is not because we had access to it. In other words, we didn't merit it and we didn't deserve it. Paul here is just giving us another aspect of salvation by grace, isn't he? If salvation is by grace and not by human merit or worth or value, well, then none of these things, it doesn't matter in the gospel of Jesus Christ who your parents are. It doesn't matter in the gospel of Jesus Christ how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter in the gospel of Jesus Christ where you came from, where your citizenship is. It doesn't matter what Ancestry.com says about you. How cool that is to find out your lineage. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't gain access to Christ because of those, right? And thanks be to God. So we might be 1% of something, but that doesn't guarantee access to the gospel. Only Jesus Christ. 
And it's a reminder to us this morning that apart from the gospel, we are hopeless and godless. And friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, if you have not repented and trusted in Christ, this is you today. You might feel really good about yourself and you might be doing well in life. But at the end of the day, verse 11 and 12 is you today. It is a bleak and dark picture. Homeless, hopeless, and godless. But if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, all of that will go away as we'll see in just a moment. This is who we once were, but it's not who we are now, thanks be to God. Uh, We can have joy and happiness and, and sing with praises to God with joy because this is not who we are now. This is who we once were. And if this is who we once were, we were pretty bad off. We were pretty far out there. He says, you know, you were far and that you've been. No, we've been. We were in a far away galaxy. We were far from Jesus. Sadly, sometimes we think that our lives, because we live a morally good life, that somehow we're closer to being saved. You see, if you think that, then your evangelism is going to be non-existent. Because you're only going to evangelize people who are morally upright like you. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't going to be for people who are hopeless and despaired and down on their luck. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't going to be for those who are impoverished and broken in the cycle of poverty. The gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be for the atheist and the agnostic. But if that's who you once were, then naturally you will want to share the gospel with those who were just like you. This is who we once were, Paul says, but this is not who we are now. In a customary way, the bad news comes before the good news. Well, the good news comes in verse 13. Look, look with me there. Paul writes, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I want to note two things. First, You have been brought near to Christ by the means of your union with Christ. The means God used to bring you near was your union with Christ. Look what he says there. But now in Christ Jesus, through our union with Christ, through being united with Christ in baptism, we have been united eternally with him. And this is the great change that God has worked in our lives. What we studied, for example, back in chapter 2. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. And he raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And through our union with Jesus by faith, we have been brought near In other words, Paul is emphasizing here the work of Jesus over and against human effort. We didn't stumble into the sheep pen. We were brought into the sheep pen. We heard that clearly in John 10. My sheep hear my voice and they come. This morning, we were trying to get the kids ready. And I was calling children. 
They didn't come. I was thinking, my goodness. How many times? I mean, I was counting down. I was doing, I mean, just short of going and grabbing them, right? And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they come. That's the effectual call that God has in our lives where he calls us unto himself. And we actually listen because he's given us ears to hear. We've been united to Christ. He has invited us. He says, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, he says. As we like to sing often, come ye sinners, poor and needy. There's a line in there that is so great. I I hope you would meditate more on it. If, in the hymn, the hymn writer says, if what you're waiting for is your fitness, to respond. In other words, if, if, if you're waiting until you get your life right, you will never come at all. Never. In other words, if you don't have the ears to hear, you're not going to follow Jesus. That's the emphasis Paul has in here. You have been brought near. It's a passive kind of perfect sense. It's you've been brought near, right? Have been. It's past tense, abiding into the present and into the future. You've been brought in. And notice notice it's passive. You didn't bring yourself in. But Jesus has brought you in. Through union with Christ, we have been brought in. But notice here also, Paul goes on to say, by the blood of Christ. The currency that we use, the ticket, if you will, if you want to use that metaphor, to enter into the sheepfold was the blood of Christ. Uh, The reason I picked John 10 to have it in your mind is because throughout John 10, in this context of inviting in the Jews and Gentiles into one sheepfold, Jesus emphasizes throughout that text that I lay down my life For my sheep. It's the same thing Paul is saying here. The blood of Jesus, the the laying down of his life, the death of Jesus is the entry point to the sheepfold. One can only enter into the body of Christ through the blood of Christ. You can't get in by any other means, not by the means of sacrifice, not by the means of sacrament. In other words, through the means of uh, communion and baptism. It is only through the death of Christ that one enters into the body of Christ. This is Paul's emphasis throughout this text. It is by the blood of Christ. Through Christ's atonement, one can have access to the body of Christ. The atonement, the atoning sacrifice, is that perfect death That Jesus died. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he is dying the death that our sin rightly deserves. Because we rebel against God and live life our own ways, God punishes our sin. He he has wrath, he is angry, and he punishes our sin through death, an eternal death. And Jesus came to die that death that you and I deserve. And the blood sacrifice that is required, as the author of Hebrews said, that there is no forgiveness of sins without, uh, without the shedding of blood. 
Christ on the cross is dying. God is pouring out his wrath, his father, the wrath our sin deserves, pouring out upon his son. And that blood is the sacrifice that atones for our sin. Just as we saw in the, in the Old Testament uh, from our brother Rod a few weeks ago in the book of Leviticus, that this, this regular sacrificial system really was set up by God in order to be a foreshadow of the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. And so every year when they would, this weekend, uh, as our Jewish brother, friends uh, will be celebrating the Passover, uh, as they bring out that lamb and sacrifice it, it was a foreshadow of what God would do in Christ. And so Paul's point here is very clear. The unity in the body of Christ is the goal of God's redemptive plan in Christ. He is, he's talking about all of these things because he wants us to understand who we once were, but who we are now. Not by our own power, not by our own strength. And if we rightly understand this, then as Christians, we want to further and encourage and promote unity in the church. Because we understand that unity in the church is God's goal in redemption. And so when you and I work to divide the body, maybe intentionally or unintentionally, we are actually working against the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must understand that in the gospel, all are equal in the body of Christ. Paul is going to illustrate this so well later in the book. Uh, For example, Paul will address husbands and wives. Uh, So he, he kind of takes different social status and kind of obliterates them. Paul will do that later when he calls out children and masters and slaves. The very fact that he appeals to a bondservant and elevates them to a place of priority demonstrates the sort of gospel work in the midst of the church. Or, for example, what Paul will write in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. He says that here, that is in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul doesn't mean there that, that there's not distinction. No, he highlights the distinction. But he says in the midst of this distinction, in the midst of this diversity, we're all the same in Christ. The same blood runs through all our veins. Ancestry.com in heaven, the DNA all comes back to Jesus. We all have the blood of Jesus in us. And so as Christians, we trust and understand this truth and we work towards the unity of the body of Christ. This means that the gospel of Jesus Christ levels all social, economic, and ethnic distinctions. It doesn't mean that we kind of come in here in a kind of communist way and just say like everybody's equal, everybody has the you know, kind of social constructs in that way. That's not, you know, that's, that's not what we do. 
But we understand that, that there is something mysterious and something wonderful when a rich man and a poor man sit next to each other and worship the same God. There's something mystical and magical when we see people of different ethnic groups gathering together each week on the Lord's Day and singing praises to the same Lord. Brothers and sisters, that is amazing. It's amazing even the history of this church to see someone of African-American descent sitting in one of these pews. Because in the 1950s, in Catonsville, that was not cool. And so brothers and sisters, as a congregation, I say all that to stir us to worship. It's something wonderful to behold each week. Let us not lose the wonder of the gospel. This is not normal. Only Jesus can do this. And so only Jesus deserves the praise and glory. We're going to think more about this in the weeks ahead. But I leave you with this last question. Do you promote unity in the church or division? Do you lay aside your personal preferences? And do I lay aside mine for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ? How are we praying for the church to be unified? Do we pray the church would look more and more like us or more and more different than us? Do we pray that the church would reflect a diverse community that we live in? I trust these things are difficult and wisdom is needed. But may we give ourselves to the unity of the bride of Christ for the sake of the gospel and God's glory among the nations. Let's pray. Father, we... Trust you are a good and gracious God. Uh, Lord, we trust that these things, though, are hard and difficult and weighty. Uh, Lord, that, that as the enemy wants to divide us as Christians. Uh, Lord, may we recognize the enemy at work. But may we joyfully celebrate the unity that the gospel of Jesus Christ has brought even among us here at Catonsville Baptist Church. Father, we are thankful for the evident work that you are doing in us and through us for your glory. Lord, help us to grow in diversity, but yet to grow in greater bonds of unity for your glory and our good in Christ, we pray. Amen.